welcome to Two Strike Noise. I am one of your hosts, Jeff Paulson. With me also right here sitting across from me is Mark A. Johnston. Hey, it's a pleasure to be back here talking about the uh, greatest sport on earth. That is, and, and in case you missed that first episode, just a reminder that uh, what we're trying to do here, we are a baseball podcast where we focus on baseball but not just baseball. We also are going to look into the political ramifications on the new South during the reconstruction of course. and how baseball also of, helped. Of course we will. That's what I've prepared for. Uh... <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a, it's a rich subject and I think it, it holds, you know, weight today just as much as it did during the actual reconstruction. Yeah. It's uh, a podcast about uh, baseball and the reconstruction of the South. And, and I think, I think it's a perfect combination because there are baseball teams in the South. There are, and actually a, a great, a great thing to talk about a team from the, from the South. I found some pictures from a rather unique bar in, not in Dallas, Texas. Where is it? I saw it was, it was somewhere near the Dallas area. It's called Dots. And if you go into a bar and there are stained glass windows in that bar, you know you're in a cool bar. Yeah. But these pictures that uh, I've shared with Mark and we'll post them on our on our Twitter feed so everybody can see them is of a particular stained glass artisan who's very fond of the Texas Rangers. Yeah. And has so encapsulated some of the historic moments from their storied franchise in stained glass in this bar. It's about as cool as anything can get. And, and of course, you know, I try to mention Nolan Ryan at least once per show. Uh, of course, he's got Nolan on there. Uh, and there is my Nolan Ryan mention, sound the bell. Thank you very much. Uh, but it is, it is really cool. I'd love to go there someday. Maybe we ought to do a, a remote broadcast. To put it on the books, I'm sure, that, I'm sure they're down at Dots. Oh, yeah. But the, uh, the, 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 the Nolan Ryan moment in question is indelibly the one that I think everybody thinks of when they think of Nolan Ryan, and that is the headlock of Robin Ventura <laughs> after an ill-advised charging of the mound <laughs> Robin in, Ventura, uh, in Dallas. And he'll always be remembered for that, even though he was he was an awesome hitter and he played great defense at third. A lot of things to remember, but but man, when he kind of stumbled and he just fell right into that headlock, it couldn't have been more pitcher perfect. And of course, Nolan Ryan standing there going, "Yeah." Yeah, you you just charged a big Texan. Good call. Ventura, I think, was trying to hurt his pitching hand with the top of his head <laughs> by letting Nolan just repeatedly pound it with that right fist. <laughs> you know, and that's a unique strategy. You got to give him credit for that. So also on this is another punch heard round the great large state of Texas, a little bit more contemporary punch that features one of our favorite Rangers, Rogned Odor, or oh, yes. as we call him, Rough Odor. Rough and Odor. And, and Joey Bats. Yes. Tony Batista. Just not, <laughs> not, not coming up on the right end of a, uh, of a hard slide on second base. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, another classic moment. This, of course, precipitated by the infamous uh, Jose Batista bat flip in the uh, in the playoffs the year before and everybody knew something was going to happen this first series the next year and uh it did not end up on 
on, on Joey Bat's wall of fame. Although, you know, that it, I wonder for Batista, what will be his defining picture? We, we just discussed Ventura being in the headlock. Will his defining picture, will it be the bat flip or will it be this, you know, <laughs> losing his sunglasses while he's getting jacked in the jaw by Rogue Ned? Yeah, forever embedded on the internet uh, for anyone to see anytime they want. You know, that that's definitely an indelible picture. But I mean, the guy's had an amazing career, so who knows? It uh, It is quite memorable, though. One other uh, thing I found this week not having to do with the Texas Rangers, but a, another American League club. Sure, Mark knows this. Most of our listeners don't. But I do not have a great appreciation for the now-retired Hawk Harrelson, <laughs> the voice of the Chicago White Sox on TV. I've heard that rumor. I have. I just, I don't, I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy listening to him call games for a various number of reasons. But as I mentioned, he's now retired. Chris Mason is a reporter for somebody in Boston. I don't know. Boston's got a lot of papers. Yeah. And he tweeted out a comment that uh, he just got from Hawk Harrelson today, which made me laugh. Retirement is overrated. All I'm doing is watching Walker, Texas Ranger, and turning a lot of Smirnoff into urine. <laughs> That's a unique way of putting it. <laughs> but probably accurate. <laughs> For his liver's sake, let's hope not. Well, but he, yeah. I'm thinking he could maybe step up his vodka game instead of, you know, Smirnoff. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are options out there, especially for whatever vodka wishes to sponsor this show. <laughs> Hi, Tito's. <laughs> there you go. So what do you say we, we jump into uh, one of this week's topics? Yeah, let's do it, man. Why don't you go first since uh, you're the smart one? Oh, I, those words have never been uttered in that order in my direction ever. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, your intellect has never been compared to mine. So obviously you're the smart one. <laughs> all right. So let's, first of all, let's talk about corking a bat. Yeah. And you know, everybody that, that follows baseball has heard about corking a bat, but before we get too deep into this story, let's just kind of go over what corking the bat does. So what it essentially does is it makes the bat lighter which allows you to get it through the strike zone quicker. So you can swing swing harder and swing quicker. Sometimes when when it's corked, it's it's a lot of time it is actual cork, but it can also be something like uh, crushed up Super Balls. I remember seeing yep. that at one point. Yeah, I believe that was Greg Nettles. Uh, I, I was thinking Chris Sabo. I thought Sabo did it. I, Nettles, Nettles very well could have, but the one in my mind is is Sabo. So the point being is that it needs to be something that can still give the bat some mass so that when the, the barrel is, is makes contact with the ball, it doesn't just crack every time. So it, it, it needs to be a hollow bat and it needs to have something to give it, give it mass. I'm looking up here and I see the one I am remembering of Chris Sabo. It is definitely Super Balls. Sammy yeah. Sosa was the one with the actual cork. I remember right. that. Because I remember somebody see somebody wearing a cork suit in the stands behind him after that whole thing, just covered head to toe in corks. Let it, let it never be said the baseball fans are unoriginal. <laughs> Is that why Sabo used to wear those goggles? Was it to protect him in case when when he shattered his bat, all the Super Bowls didn't go in his eye? 
I I always thought that it was because it made him so sexy. But I mean, who knows? But I did find uh, the Greg Nettles thing, uh, 1974 against the Detroit Tigers. He broke his bat. Super Bowls came bouncing out. And then he, of course, claimed ignorance, said a fan had given him the bat. He didn't know there was anything wrong with it. A, a fan gave him a bat and he used it? <laughs> hey, here, here's, here's a bat. <laughs> here's a bat. You, you want to use it tonight? Sure. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. So that's the where we're both correct. We're both thinking of, of an incident with Super Bowls. All right. Well, now that we understand the basics of corking the bat. And Super Bowls. And Super Bowls. Let's jump into a caper that has since been brilliantly named Batgate. Batgate. So let's set the scene here. First of all, it's 1994. You are probably browsing the internet with your brand spanking new Netscape Navigator browser. Mm -hmm. The Shawshank Redemption and Forrest Gump were both in the theaters. And men everywhere were no doubt making mixtapes for their significant others. With boys to men, I'll make love to you. So also let's just... Look at the MLB world in 1994. MLB had just realigned for the first time since 1969. The entry of the Colorado Rockies and the Florida Marlins the season before had given the leagues an equal number of teams finally at 14. But of course, because of this, each league had to go from having two divisions to three. And simple math will tell you, I guess I should explain this because you said I was the smart one. Yeah. Because of that, there would need to be an additional playoff spot so that there could be the correct amount of teams. Let's say the wild card was born. Yes. So the White Sox and the Indians are both battling for the top spot in the freshly minted AL Central. On this date, they are in a virtual tie after the White Sox defeated the Tribe the night before to open the series, despite one Mr. Albert Bell smacking his 26th home run. That raised Bell's average to 356 and upping his OPS to 1.139. Wow. Point here being he was having an incredible season. MVP talk, you know, carrying this club on his back. The Sox and the Indians were not only fighting for the Central, but they were also battling with the Yankees and the Orioles, who had been trading places among the top of the East with similar records. All of these teams also looking at that one wild card spot, should they not be able to, to win their division. But of those four teams, obviously only three of them are going to get in. So every game, especially when you're playing each other, is very important. So the day is now July 15th, the White Sox at the Indians. Game two, seeing a matchup of the 10-3 and three Mark Clark for the Tribe. And my favorite, Black Jack McDowell taking the bump for the Sox. You know who would have been up on the booth and who I actually mention, will mention here a little bit later, is our favorite Hawk Harrelson. Oh, good. Voice of the White Sox. So the Indians struck quickly in the top of the first inning, already up one to nothing. And our buddy Albert Bell comes to the plate. As he gets to the batter's box, Gene Lamont, the skipper of the White Sox, He's been tipped off somehow that Bell might be corking his bats. So he calls time, heads out to umpire Dave Phillips, 
And as Bell digs into the box, he is challenged with the legality of his bat. So yeah. Phillips takes the bat from Bell, examines the end of it, and confers with the other umpires. There's a great picture. Albert Bell is is standing right next to them menacingly with his hands on his hips. Phillips uh, took the bat and he said, yep, we're going we're gonna to confiscate it and we'll take a look at it after the game. So he takes the bat and he hands it to the locker room attendant to put it away in the umpire's dressing room. Now, I do not know what would stop Bell from just grabbing another corked bat, <laughs> especially <laughs> since every teammate said that every one of his bats was corked after the fact. Just oh, wow. go grab another one. <laughs> wow. Hence the, uh, the incredible statistics. <laughs> we'll take your cork to bat, but just go grab another one. We, right. we won't do anything about that one. Well, you know what? It's one of those things online where one corked bat is 10 bucks, but two is only 15. <laughs> Three is only 20. Buy a fourth one and it's free. Right. Exactly. So it, probably the same general idea. So, like I said, I, I don't know which what would stop him from just going and grabbing another one. Regardless, he goes, gets another bat. The game continues. Now, I've, I've got video. I'll, I'll post it on, on our Twitter feed. And just, oh my goodness, when, when Albert Bell has to hand his bat over, Hawk Harrelson is so smug. He is so smug. Ah, we're checking the bat right here of Albert Bell. Is it corked? Could it be? The best part, though, is when the umpire hands the bat to the clubhouse attendant, Hawk says that bat will not get out of his hands because he knows the clubhouse guy and he's, you know, what a great guy. He's, he's right. a clubhouse guy, known him for years. He won't let that bat out of his sight. There's a good guy to give it to. Well, Vinny will take care of it. I'll tell you that right now. That bat will not get out of his hands. So, now the bat of their best player is in possession of the umpires, and it will no doubt be discovered to be corked. Everybody knows it is. And obviously there's going to be repercussions for this. So in this tight pennant race, they're going to no doubt lose their best player, and that's going to hurt. Well, that is where Jason Grimsley comes into this story. Now, did did they call Jason Grimsley the Grim Reaper? I don't know, or, but uh, they should have. Because I, I I know Stu Grimson in the NHL. He was a, a defenseman in the in the nineties. He was nicknamed the Grim Reaper, and I always called Jason Grimsley the Grim Reaper. But I don't. I agree. If they didn't, right? They it, they should be fined for not doing that. It absolutely. It certainly beats the uh, beats the snot out of the nickname. Jasonator. <laughs> so, so I like the Grim Reaper much better. Yeah. So, regardless, though, Grimsley, who's a starter at this point, he's not pitching. Obviously, what else, he's got just sitting in the dugout. Well, he's got nothing else to do. He noticed earlier in the day that the new Comiskey Park umpire locker room was near the visiting clubhouse. For some unknown reason, he also realized that there was a drop ceiling atop all of these cinder wall blocks. Grimsley came up with this plan. He goes over, he tells the bench coach, goes over to manager Jim Hargrove, whispers in his ear what, what could happen here. Hargrove just looks over, kind of just barely tilts his head towards Grimsley and gives him the thumbs up. <laughs> so now it's on. Oh, that's it great. is on. So in his youth, Grimsley had been a bit of a tree climber. 
In fact, in an article that I found for the New York Times, written by, a, at that point, a young buster only, Grimsley was described as being a, quote, aggressive tree climber as a child. <laughs> I'm going to climb the hell out of that tree. Uh, aggressively, man. You're not going to slow me down. You're not going to get in my way. If there is a branch this is where it shouldn't be, it's gone. <laughs> so he, this guy was a freaking monkey in his yeah. youth, aggressive. is what he's saying. Yes. Aggressive. So with help from some clubhouse guys, Grimsley gets a flashlight puts on some batting gloves, grabs one of Paul Sorrento's bats, and rubs it up with pine tar and rosin to try and make it look like it was, it was a game-used bat. Sticks it in a sanitary sock, and through the roof in the manager's office he goes, because, of course, there's a drop ceiling there. Well, it is not an easy climb, not, not just a stroll in the park here. He's balancing on a 12-inch beam in the dust and the heat in the middle of summer, you know, in this enclosed area, he's avoiding ducks and wires as he heads in the direction he believes the umpire's dressing room is. So struggling not to fall through the ceiling, he thinks he's there. He thinks he's he's ready to drop down. So he gently removes the ceiling tile, peeks down in this room, and there, sitting on a couch, is a member of the grounds crew. Not the right room. <laughs> So Grimsley recounts that uh, the grounds crew member looked up at him and Grimsley just put his index finger to his mouth and that, you know, that universal yeah. quiet sign. Yes. This is a White Sox groundskeeper. The groundskeeper's all in. He gives him the thumbs up and doesn't say anything. <laughs> just there to pick up a check, I guess. Well, and, and, you know, we're talking about baseball here. So it is actually... It wouldn't shock anybody that much to have a professional ball player pop through the ceiling if you're the grass crew. <laughs> it's just something you go, yeah, ball player, yeah. You would think, though, down the line after, you know, people find out something was wrong, maybe that ground screw guy could put two and two together and go, hmm. Yeah, I I've, think I remember seeing an Indian pop out of the ceiling. <laughs> I, uh, I know a lot of ground screw guys, and I think two and two might be a challenge. But, okay, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ground screw guys, I'm sorry. So Grimsley puts the ceiling tile back on and, and he heads back off further, still looking for the umpire's room. Now, though, he's kind of got his bearing straight. I think he knows where he's going now. So finally, he makes it to the right room. He again opens the ceiling tile, kind of peers down, and he sees he's in the right room. So he climbs down on top of the refrigerator to the floor and quickly finds the bat in one of the umpire's lockers. Pulls it out. Replaces it with the Sorrento model, puts the bad bat back in the sanitary, back up through the ceiling he goes, stops to make sure there's no footprints visible or anything from the dust, and prepares to head back. But just as he replaces the ceiling tile, somebody comes into the room. Door opens, somebody walks in. So Grimsley didn't know if this was an attendant or an umpire, who it was. He couldn't see. He'd put the, the tile back on. So he just waits for a couple of minutes and eventually the person goes back through the through the door. He hears it close. He's good to go. So back again, across the beam, all this stuff, back to the clubhouse. The venture in total took five and a half innings to complete. So nearly wow. an hour and a half. Wow. This covert mission is underway. Now, little did Grimsley know that while climbing 
in and out of that ceiling in the umpire's room, he had actually damaged the ceiling tile he'd removed. <laughs> he'd nicked the corner of it. And you know what those ceiling tiles are like. It's almost a like an old dry piece of bread. Like if you break sure. it, there are crumbs everywhere. Yeah, yeah. He'd also knocked a couple of metal brackets that hold the tile in place loose. And they likewise had fallen onto the floor of the umpire's room. So it was not exactly a pristine getaway for Grimsley. Right. Yeah, Grimsley had not gone through secret agent training. No. Although he had watched a number of James Bond films. <laughs> if only he had strapped a dust vac to his belt for yeah, this mission, he could have quickly cleaned this up as well. Yeah, that's a lot of forward thinking, though. I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> so before the umpires had retired to their locker room, after the uh, the Indians had completed the 3-2 victory, before they even got back there... Somebody else had come into the room and they had already figured out that the locker room had been broken into. So Ron Schuler, the White Sox GM, meets with the umpires and informs them of this break in before, again, they get back to their room. So this is big time now. The White Sox want that original bat. Oh, yeah. Because they want Bell to be suspended. MLB wants that bat. Now, Grimsley is sweating bullets because he's thinking he's going to get run out of the game for this. He thought yeah. this was kind of a fun, oh, I'm going to go steal this. Now MLB is, is on this. MLB even sends a former FBI agent to Comiskey the next day. They set wow. up a crime scene, yellow tape. They're looking for clues. They're dusting for fingerprints. This is this is a big time thing now. Seriously, they, they really they did all that. They, they did. This was wow. This was a serious matter, and the only thing missing, of course, was a chalk outline of the bat in the in the locker. Uh, that would have been uh, pretty. That awesome. That would have been a great visual. So the pressure starting to mount. This was you know one of the biggest stars in the game in a contested divisional race who cheated, and then the evidence goes missing at their chief rival stadium. So this is pretty, pretty important. MLB orders the Indians to produce Bell's bat, which they do. It was sawed in half in front of Bell and Indians uh, general manager, John Hart. When Hart handed the bat over, his only stipulation being that the person who perpetrated the crime, in this case, Grimsley, would not be named or punished. Bell, however, was suspended for 10 games after the bat was found to be illegal. That suspension was eventually reduced to seven games. And as I said, nobody knew that it was Grimsley for over 10 years after he committed this heist. This heinous crime. He and Joe Jackson. That's Joe right. Jackson. Joe Jackson sounds weird unless you put shoeless Joe there, doesn't it? Because then you're just talking about like Michael Jackson's father. Yeah, or yeah, you're thinking music and stuff. <laughs> so all of this drama because of the pennant race, but it was all for naught because there was no postseason that year. As the season ended a month later on August 12th by the players' strike, Chicago at that time was a game in first on top of the Indians. They were still right there when, when the strike happened. Now, how did Gene Lamont know that the bats were corked? Who told yeah. him? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we might have an answer. Oh, El Presidente, Denny Martinez. Denny says he knows. He claims that somebody from the Sox went through their clubhouse the night before when they had arrived. He says that they had x-rayed bats and they confirmed that, in this case, that Bell's bat was altered. So wow. Denny's source was a Comiskey Park security guard who had overheard it from a Sox player discussing the matter. 
No so way. again, there is there is no loyalty for these uh, Comiskey Park employees that punch the <laughs> clock every day. <laughs> Grounds crew guys like, eh. Right. Security guys like, hey, <laughs> let me tell you something that we did to your team's locker room. <laughs> wow, that's that's pretty that's pretty crazy, man. That I mean, something had to have tipped them off in the first place. So this is as good a story as any other. It sounds like you've got some backup on it. Yeah, and 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 Denny Martinez swears by this. Still, I, I read an article recently that he he claims that he you know got this information from a Sox employee. To add more intrigue to this, the person who supposedly corked the bats for Bell passed away the year after that. Oh, geez. now I have a question: Was there foul play? It's how, uh, how high up does this go? Well, was was the deep state involved though, or the oh, Illuminati? What is it not involved in? And which Illuminati? The rich people or the aliens? Or both working oh, in concert? No, those groups hate each other. They really oh. do. So just um, just a couple of notes from the game itself. Actually, only one note from the the game itself. It was pretty unordinary, except for this whole caper going on. But the one thing I noticed out of the box score was that Ron Karkovice tripled in this game. <laughs> That's Ron just Kark- strange right there. <laughs> Ron Karkovice, if you remember, was the big burly catcher. And as he ran, it, you could almost see the refrigerator strapped to his back. He was not fleet of foot. He had only six career triples, one of which happened during this game. So I, I mentioned that August 12th, the players went on strike and there was no postseason this year. Of course, this was the infamous year where the Montreal Expos, the time of the strike, were six games in front of the National League East with a 74 and 40 record. And after that, they were never the same and then left town just a couple of years later hmm. to go to Washington. So that, my friends, is Batgate. This kind of story is what I think, Mark, you and I both really find so incredibly charming about the game of baseball is because of the the pace of play, which is so different from every other sport and the sheer number of games and length of season, there are so many, there are so many opportunities for great stories like this to happen. And it's, it's really easy to go and just find some really strange antidotes like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, I, I have a few actually, I wouldn't mind sharing. Sure, we got nothing else to do. Right. Here's the deal. I used to work in minor league baseball. I worked as a clubhouse assistant manager. And there was a a player for the team I worked for came up to me and said, we think that a pitcher on the other side is cheating. We think he's keeping some slick stuff underneath his, uh, somewhere in his glove or something. So when you get a chance, can you check it out? Well, I'm there all night and into the morning because I'm getting ready for the next game. So I go to this pitcher's locker, and sure enough, he's got some slick kind of um, like Bardol or something. And I look around at his uniform and stuff, and he's actually putting it, I can see the stains underneath his belt, but next to a belt loop. So you can't see it, but all he has to do is dip his fingers underneath his belt a little bit, and he's got the, he's got the cheating material with him. That's perfect uh, because you just pretend like you're adjusting your pants. That's exactly, and that's exactly what he was doing. So I report back the next day 
And I go, uh, yeah, he's, here's what he's doing. He's keeping it here. And uh, this is what it is. So I'm watching. The, during the game, I didn't have a lot to do. So I was watching the game, and they bring this guy in. Well, this gentleman, the player that told me to go check on it, calls timeout when he gets up to the plate, and he asks the umpire to check the pitcher. And, and the pitcher is, is standing there going, what? The umpires all converge, and they're looking at his glove, and they're looking around. And finally, they make him take off his belt because, you know, obviously he told him that's where he keeps it. And he looks under the belt, and nothing. So it was a big giant. <laughs> it was a big giant goose egg, but it was fun being a part of of a minor league caper. Uh, although compared to your story, mine is just minor league. That that is that is a great story. Oh, good. <laughs> you went I, here. I was thinking, oh, and they're going to find it, and they're going to vote you a playoff share. <laughs> I wish, but we never went to the playoffs with that team. That's. I assume you've got some other oddities for us today. Most of them don't involve me personally, uh, like the previous one. But uh, uh, one of my favorites is the day that Joel Youngblood uh, got two hits, which isn't a huge deal. But one was for the Mets and the other was for the Expos. And that was the same day. What happened is he, he actually drove in a couple runs for the Mets at Shea Stadium and against the Cubs. And... Um, Right after the game, he was traded to the Montreal Expos. Well, the Expos were playing in Philly. So he just caught a quick, fl quick flight to Philly, and they put him in in the seventh inning. Boom, another hit, two hits, same day, two different teams. That's the kind of stuff that I love about baseball. I was reading, about, I was reading some really exciting stuff about the creation of baseballs, which, man, riveting. I tell you, for a guy like me, for every other human being, boring, but uh, that's... We baseball guys are a little special that way. And, uh, the, you know, they designed the modern-day baseball specifically set out by uh, the early rules of the game, Cartwright and, and so on like that. But when we got into World War II and they were creating grenades, they actually decided to make it the same or similar to the size and weight of a baseball. That was their goal because they figured uh -huh. every average American boy knew how to chuck a baseball. And so they made grenades uh, very similar to baseball in size and weight and improved our accuracy, I imagine. That makes complete sense. I mean, baseball was definitely the national pastime at that point. Everybody played baseball and just make that grenade similar to it because it's just like going out and having a one-way catch with somebody. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and, you know, the object in that case is not to catch it. But uh, somewhat similar to my story of Joel Youngblood is that Don Baylor, I love Don Baylor, by the way, underrated guy. He actually played in three straight World Series. Not a big deal, right? A lot of people have done it. Difference is Don Baylor played in three straight World Series for three different teams. In 86, he was with the Red Sox. They went to the World Series. Of course, that's the infamous game where Mookie Wilson hit the slow roller, that clutch slow roller you know, down the line and, <laughs> and he still, you know, it drives me nuts that he still gets credited for that. You know, oh, remember when Mookie Wilson got that hit, it wasn't a hit. All right. <laughs> yeah. He hit a clutch slow roller for goodness sakes. And Bill Buckner, well, I don't need to say anymore. That tells the whole story. But anyway, Don Baylor was on, on that Red Sox team in 87. He played for the world champion twins 
and then in 88 we don't want to talk about it <laughs> i knew we were gonna get there um 88 not a winning season for the a or not a winning uh world series for the a's but Don Baylor was on that team as well. So three straight World Series for three different teams. He did win one, and that was with the Twins in 87. Weird stuff can happen changing teams. There's a lot of trades in baseball. And if you don't believe me, um, just look up the Seattle Mariners uh, lately. They've been making – they are a record-setting <laughs> trading team, let me tell you. Now, that reminds me of another one. This is kind of not kind of weird. This is really strange. Right when the Dodgers were about to move from Brooklyn to Los Angeles, and it was a very well kept secret, they actually did not want to move their entire minor league team. 40 players, or I think it was just a 25 man roster at that time with their minor leagues. They didn't want to move, spend the money to move their minor league team. The Chicago Cubs minor league team was on the West Coast in California. So, what the two teams did, and I kid you not, they traded their entire teams. They traded their minor league systems for one another for logistical purposes. I had never heard that before. And I was going for real. So, That's you know, crazy. That tells me that neither team had a real stud just lingering <laughs> in the minors. Right. Exactly. That just cracked me up. And it, that blows me away that, that some, you, you would not see that now because every single player is evaluated on very specific metrics and, and, nobody's going to come up with a trade like that. But, you know, back in the day, uh, we really don't feel like moving everything. You guys just want our team? Yeah, we'll give you ours. That's in such stark contrast now, though, where teams, minor league teams, change cities every other year. Right. It's They jump around just every year. There's three or four teams in every league that change their affiliation. This year, the... The, the last couple of years, the A's had been in Nashville, and this year they're in Las Vegas. Yeah, switch affiliations like that, but they don't trade the whole team with it, you know. No, yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Here's another story. I'm, I'm completely switching the, the direction we're going here, but this is, this is the story that I want to get out there because it's, it's just so impressive. Gaylord Perry, who I had the opportunity to meet in an elevator this last year, nicest guy in the world. Gaylord Perry in 62 back when all pitchers hit before the DH. Perry played for the San Francisco Giants, not known for his hitting prowess. Perry was, you know, he's a Hall of Fame pitcher, um, but Gaylord Perry was not known to be a, a spectacular hitter. It's hard to grab a bat with all that Vaseline. It slips right out of your hands. Right, and, and if you're going to use Vaseline, you don't want the absolute opposite of Vaseline, which is pine tar. So, <laughs> no, they've done a scientific study. I saw it, uh, molecular makeup. They, you put them together and they become nothing. So they, they're the antithesis of each other. I'm kidding. I don't even know what that means. But anyway. <laughs> you had me. I was so ready to go try an experiment. I was like, wow. Uh, anyway, um, Gaylord Perry, uh, not known for his hitting prowess, his manager, Alvin Dark, manager of the San Francisco Giants, and I'm quoting here, quote, They'll put a man on the moon before Gaylord Perry hits a home run, unquote. Okay. So time goes by. And then on July 20th, 1969, a famous day in American history. Jeff, you, you know what happened on that date? I do know what happened on that day. Am, am I, am I, should, should I be breaking the news? Break, break the news because some of our listeners don't know that this has happened yet. I've just been handed this update. It looks like the space race is over. The United States have landed on the moon. 
That's right. That's what happened July 20th, 1969. Alvin Dark predicted it would happen before Gaylord Perry hits a home run. And unbeknownst to the rest of us, but announced now, um, 20 minutes later, Gaylord Perry hits his first career home run. So this, this prediction, this prognostication was made far in advance. We land on the moon, and 20 minutes later, Perry hits his home run. Now, Alvin Dark's the kind of guy I want to hang out with in Vegas because if he's coming <laughs> up with that kind of stuff, you make that kind of a prediction over the course of years, and you're accurate to within 20 minutes, you deserve a gold star, my friend. That's impressive. So he made the prediction, and bingo, he nailed it. So I, I thought that was, like, way cool, and which takes me to another interesting story. I have lots of interesting stories. Anyway, that's why I want to right? hang out with you. That's yeah, right. That's what... Some of them are even true. So, Some of them we can't even talk about here. This is, <laughs> this is true. Not that they're dirty. They're just real secretive. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> Hoyt Wilhelm. He was a rookie at the age of 28, which is, would be strange now. But he pitched for 21 years and made the Hall of Fame. So I guess he did all right as a, as a late bloomer. <laughs> at his first at-bat, Hoyt Wilhelm hit a home run. So straight out of the minors pitching a game, comes up to the plate, knocks it out of the park, okay? He played for 21 years, almost 500 plate appearances, and he never hit another home run. That was it. <laughs> His first at-bat ever. He hits it out of the park, obviously making a name for himself because they pitched around him for the next 500 ABs. Pitchers hitting home <laughs> runs, weird stuff happens, man. Hey, and I have one. You probably know this one. Ricky Henderson. Wait, he Ricky walked. who? Ricky, Ooh. the great number 24, the greatest leadoff hitter of all time. Ricky, during the course of his career, has he led off an inning 796 times he walked, leading off an inning, okay, which is a lot. Beginning of the game or whenever he got up first in the inning, 796 times he walked. Now, the strange thing about that is that is more times leading off an inning than someone like Ernie Banks, who we mentioned earlier, Kirby Puckett, Ryan Sandberg, Lou Brock. Those guys didn't walk 796 times in their entire careers. Jeez. So completely different level that Ricky was playing on to get on base. He was, he was the ultimate get on base and scary kind of guy. But yeah, 796 times, more that's more than some great Hall of Famers walked in their entire careers. Pretty impressive. Well, and of course, Ricky Henderson leading off innings, you talk about leading off a game, still holds the, the mm -hmm. all-time record for most leadoff home runs with 81. Yeah, that, that's one that's going to stand a while. That, that's going to stand for a good while. 81, that's amazing to me. Starting off with a bang, that was Ricky. Oh, I have another little uh, anecdote here about official scoring. You know, I have a soft spot for official scorers. I was an official scorer in the minor leagues, and it is the most thankless job in the world. The official scorer, thankless job, no matter what you do, if it's a close play, half the people are going to be mad at you. So people, take it easy on your official score, man. They're trying as hard as they can, right? Let's be nice. But nobody ever says, hey, official scorer, you sure had a great game? Because you go completely unnoticed if you don't make any screw-ups. You mess up, half the crowd boos you. It's, it's like a, offensive linemen. Yes, it's a thankless job. And that's part of the reason I don't do it anymore. The other part is that I'm lazy. 
interesting, um, interesting little anecdote. In 1942, uh, the Boston Braves have a guy named Paul Wainer, W-A-N-E-R, Paul Wainer, as of June, had 2,999 career hits. All right, so he's looking for number 3,000. Crowd is, is looking for number 3,000. Excitement, you know, there's, a, there's an electricity in the air. Uh, he's, at, he's at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. He hits a ground ball, and it's a close play. And it's one of those plays where you can call it a hit, you can call it an error. And like I said, half the people are going to agree with you. So Wainer gets to first. The official scorer calls it a hit. 3,000. People are cheering, high fives. Did they have high fives in 1942? Well, anyway, people were cheering. They were just hearty handshakes. Yeah. Well, Wainer's like, no, 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 no. He actually complains to the official scorer and says he does not want his 3,000th hit to be tainted. I want it to be clean. Talks the scorer into reversing his call to an error. So he's back to 2,999. Two days later. I feel like, what the heck are you doing? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so the pitcher is like, let's do it. That ERA, right. man. It, and he got no argument from him, from the pitcher. So he actually got the score to, to change his call. And he went back to 2,999 hits and he got his 3,000 uh, two days later. And it was an official and clean hit. Did, did he complain during the game or was yes. this after the game? Right when the game happened, he, he stopped everything and said, let's not do that. Hey, and since we're talking about pitchers and home runs earlier, because I'm jumping all over the place. By the way, this is a perfect topic for me and my ADHD because I, I, it allows me to just be me. Oh, look, um, there's a shiny object over here. <laughs> uh, 1971, Rick Wise, an awesome pitcher for the Phillies, threw a no-hitter against the uh, Cincinnati Reds at Riverfront Stadium. A, a great day for any pitcher throwing a no-hitter. But not only did he throw a no-hitter, he also hit two home runs during the game. Not one, two home runs. So talk about a best day ever that would be hard to, to replicate or, over, or overcome. Two home runs and a no-hitter in one day. I think I might have just retired after that. He scored the runs, he drove in the runs, and he didn't allow a single hit. So he got two home runs while the, uh, the Cincinnati Reds got no hits at all. Kind of selfish, but also impressive. And, okay, let's talk a little bit about no-hitters. Sandy Koufax and another strange story. Sandy Koufax threw a no-hitter in May 11th of 1963, and the final out in the no-hitter was a guy named Harvey Kuhn, K-U-E-N-N. Harvey Kuhn made the final out of the no-hitter on May 11th, 1963. Okay, Koufax, two years later, September 9th, 1965, throws another no-hitter, final out of the game, guess who? Harvey Kuhn. He strikes out, and it actually was a perfect game, not just a no-hitter. He strikes out to end the game. Can you imagine what was going through his mind when he's up there? Not again, please, Lord, not again. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened? Yep, sure enough, he was the final out again. Just It's weird stuff like that that I really enjoy about baseball. And it, the other reason that we got lots of weird stories, is it's been around for a good while. And, and so, you know, there's plenty to choose from. And then there's a lot of just coincidence type stuff. Based on like a sheer volume of games played, you're going you're gonna to run into some, some strange coincidences. The, Bob and Mike Garbank, not household names, but pretty good ball players. This is in 1944. Two brothers. Mike played for the Yankees. Bob played for your athletics. Mike 
Garbank played in 80 games. Bob Garbank played in only 18. They both hit 261. Okay. <laughs> That's not where it ends. They were both catchers in the American League, and they both threw out 39% of would-be base dealers. Wow. And in a career, they almost had the same exact number of games played. So genetics is a factor in this particular story, as they were, they were both born to hit 261, apparently. <laughs> well, I've got a great story that is kind of coincidence as well as genetics. Yeah. Uh, a name that's been in the, in the, in the news a lot this week, uh, especially for me being an athletics fan, is Kyler Murray who was the A's draft pick last season. He was their top draft pick. And he was also the quarterback of the Oklahoma Sooners this last year. And unfortunately went on to win the Heisman Trophy this year. So Kyler Murray is trying to decide whether to go play football or come and play for right. the A's. Well, this story ties in with Randy Johnson, the big unit. Okay. So you remember back in, I think it was 1990. I want to say 91, but I, I don't remember. I think we just talked about 91. But you remember in spring training when Randy Johnson threw a pitch in spring training and it killed that bird that ran yeah. right in front of it the, midway through. The daredevil bird who decided, I want to fly in front of a Randy Johnson fastball. Watch me. Bad idea. It just, it was like a cartoon. Just it, it instead of a puff of smoke, though, it was just feathers went everywhere. Just yeah. nothing you will ever see again. Well, the batter at the plate was Calvin Murphy for the San Francisco Giants. That's Kyler Murphy's uncle. Whoa, no kidding. So oh, just funny. another strange coincidence with, yeah. the, with the wonderful game of baseball. A famous uh, video, uh, one of the more famous baseball videos we'll ever see is that, that poor bird blowing up and not, you know, actually not even existing anymore. Did you see somebody put it to the to the eighteen twelve overture? Just you know the the very end where the cannons are going off, and every time that bird would explode. I, I have not, I have not seen that, but it's known. The bird's uh, family has out. been suing YouTube trying to get that taken down. But... I'm sure they have. Um, it, it, what a, it's, it's such a strange thing to happen, you know, the, the timing. That I mean, if anybody was going to hit a bird, and it might as well have been Randy Johnson, because at least the bird was oblivious to what killed it. It didn't knock it down and it limped around and his wing broke in, you know, or anything like that. It was just poof, gone. I can just imagine before he started that day, Randy Johnson, somebody told him the story about Dave Winfield and yes. Dave Winfield hitting the seagull in Toronto and, and getting arrested for it. And Randy Johnson just like, here, hold my beer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, you think that's cool? Because I believe the seagull was stationary. You know. Yeah, it was just standing there in the outfield. <laughs> I can hit a bird mid-flight with a 90-plus mile-an-hour fastball. See if you can pull that one off. Just some good stuff. I thought baseball fans, kind of, we, we all like trivia, and it doesn't all have to be about statistics and numbers and so on like that. It can just be about weird stuff. So a lot of fun we're having here. We have a, we have a little section on the show where we like to talk about our second most favorites, yes, second best. Your second best. Better than most of the rest. Not better than number one. Number one is better than anyone. A lot of uh, people will ask you what your favorite 
is of certain things. Uh, we like to know your second favorite. Because second favorite never gets as much attention as it deserves. Always so, the bridesmaid. Yeah, exactly. First, tell us your favorite minor league team. But who's your second favorite minor league team and why? Hmm. Okay. So as is tradition for this segment, whoever came up with the idea, which is you, you will tell me <laughs> your... First, you can tell me who your favorite minor league team is, but then your second favorite. And then I will be over here in the corner quietly, frantically scribbling in a notebook trying to come up with my answer. Okay, okay. Yes, my, my favorite minor league team is a team that I had the pleasure of working for for 11 years. I started as a clubhouse guy, assistant clubhouse, all the way up to where I was actually doing laundry for the players. So, you know, and time. checking belt loops. Don't and forget checking, checking belt loops. Yes, I was the, the internal spy as well. I got, to, I got to do three years in the clubhouse, and then I ran scoreboards for uh, eight years after that. And it was a lot of fun. And that was for the Tacoma Rainiers, the uh, AAA affiliate of the Seattle Mariners. Now, were they, were they the Rainiers when you were there, or were they the Tigers? Good question. Um, when I worked in the clubhouse, they were the Tigers. So I got to work with some of the some awesome Oakland Athletics players. You know, Jason Giambi, the nicest guy in the world. Troy Neal and... and uh, not the nicest guy in the world, <laughs> Troy Neal. I don't, I don't know. I only saw the side of him that was real friendly. So, but I have stories. If you about know him where too. Troy Neal is, please contact the FBI <laughs> immediately. They are still looking for him. Uh, Troy, you know, good guy from what I knew of him, just from hanging out with him a little bit. Um, but anyway, yeah, they were they were the Oakland Athletics uh, top affiliate at that time. So. I actually worked under the A's organization for three years when I moved up to scoreboards. And why I say up, not as in it's a promotion. I mean, actually, literally from the basement to up on the roof. <laughs> um, so my favorite team is the team that I work for um, from the Seattle area. And so my favorite team is the Tacoma Rainiers. Now, here's the second favorite. This is important. This is what this whole segment's about. My second favorite team happens to be the AAA affiliate, and this will shock you, of the Houston Astros. So, um, but there's a, there's a special reason. They, they, the team is called the Round Rock Express, and they specifically named it for Nolan Ryan. We, I he was known saw as that Ryan as soon Express. as you said that. I'm like, I know right where he's going yeah. because I know who his favorite player is. <laughs> so, uh, actually, Nolan's son, Reed, is part of the ownership group, and... You know, a team named after your favorite player, how can that not be way up there as far as stuff that you like? So the Round Rock Express, named after Nolan Ryan, my second favorite minor league team of all time. Well, that is great. And now this is going to be weird because we we actually have some overlap here, okay. which might not be expected. My first favorite minor league team Actually, while still in existence, has a different name today, just as, as you just mentioned with the Rainiers and the Tigers. But my favorite minor league team, and it's odd because they are currently the AAA club of the California Angels of Los Angeles, Orange County, whatever. I, yeah, something like that. The Salt Lake Buzz, now mm. the Salt Lake Bees. Yes. Now, they were my favorite team because I grew up my formidable years in Salt Lake City. And okay. I went to Washington State University and I majored in broadcasting. 
And when I came home for a summer, I actually interned for the local TV station. And basically my beat, if you would, was to cover the bees or the buzz. I'm sorry at that time. And really cool hat I still have until Georgia Tech sued sued them because their mascot is Buzz. And then they became the bees. So even though they are the AAA club of a bitter rival uh, in the American League West, they are my favorite minor league team. Now, here's where the overlap comes in. For my second favorite minor league team, I am likewise, well, I'm going with your number one, the Tacoma Tigers. Nice. And that is because when I was in junior high, it was before I I was unfettered with employment. You know, it was the summer. I had no reason to, I didn't have a job, could do whatever I want. I followed the A's farm system so closely to find out about all these players that were coming up because I love the team so much. And the Tacoma Tigers were obviously it. To go back to when I was interning at the Buzz, one time the Tigers came through town and I started to talk with their radio announcer who was Bob Robertson. Now, Bob Robertson is the voice, the legendary voice of the Washington State Cougars football and basketball teams. So here I am. I'm a student at Washington State. He comes through, so I'm talking with him, and he's like, do you want to jump on an inning or two with me? And I'm blown away. So I got to sit up there, and I got to call part of a baseball game with Bob Robertson. That is so cool, man. You know what's funny is I don't think you've told me that story. I didn't know you actually got to call some innings. Dude, that's a dream. Well, that ended up way cooler than I thought it was going to be. That's that's great, man. Good story. And by the way, when you went to see, when you were in Salt Lake and the Tigers came through, did you notice how clean their uniforms were? That was me. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it was the second and third games, I noticed they weren't quite as clean because I think the, <laughs> I think the Buzz Clubhouse guy was just, he was well, just going through the motions. That'll wrap it up for this episode of Two Strike Noise. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter at Two Strike Noise. We like to post links to all of the stories, pictures, videos that we talk about on each episode so you can get the full effect and see everything that we're talking about. So for Mark A. Johnston, I'm Jeff Paulson. We will see you next time on Two Strike Noise.